in Mexico. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Namaste. Every Monday at 6 p.m., it's Joke Workshop, streaming live on mutinyradio.fm. Lift the veil from your third eye on joke creation and what it takes to be a stand-up comic in the five shakasanas of San Francisco's comedy scene. This all-ages open mic invites comedy. Oh, pre-sign by Venmoing 2 to $5 at Mutiny Radio. Join us live for a small and special audience at the Mutiny Radio studio and gallery performance space, 2781 21st Street at Florida Street in the deep, deep, deep mission. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Does my ponytail look cool? Thank you. Namaste. Tuesday used to be the most unlikely night for fun. But every week at 6 p.m., come to OMG's Tuesday Open Mic. And see comics work out new material for free. For free. They get your Tuesday night party on with two-for-one well drink specials during the 6 to 8 p.m. show. Check out Eventbrite to reserve your free seat every Tuesday, 6 p.m. At OMG on Savory 6th Street. Savory 6th Street. Show up to go up. Hey, kids. It's your pal, Spiderman. <laughs> Sorry, Spiderman. Mortimer Spiderman. 
But I'm not swinging through the senior facility, best in Mysterio at Boggle, or getting beautifully plowed by the Rhino. I'm headed down to Mutiny Radio at the corner of 21st and Florida. They got some schlemiels doing the laugh laugh. But hey, don't be a schmuck and donate two to five dollars on, hold, hold on, what is this? Let me get my glasses, the print's too small. Hold on. Venmo? That's not real. What is that, Swedish? You knew that, right? This is in San Francisco. I'll drown it on. I'll, it's nap time. The year is 2023. Oh, I wish that laughter had value and the unexpected laugh was priceless. Worry not. True entertainment has brought us a savior in whosthatlive.com. Oh, finally, an escape from the apocalyptic nightmare I live in. You can go to whosthatlive.com and buy comedy tickets. And you're in a raffle, I guess. True, 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 true production. First Sundays of every month, join your friends from Mutiny Radio at Hotel Utah on 4th and Bryant. 5 p.m. first Sundays for free comedy. Is San Francisco getting you down? Is everything too expensive? Not first Sundays of the month at Hotel Utah for free comedy with Mutiny Radio. Incredible lineups every month with the best comedians from around the Bay. Join your friends trying to keep things affordable for free comedy first Sundays of the month. Hotel Utah, 4th Street. Weekly comedy at the best neighborhood bar in the city. Join your friends from Mutiny Radio every Thursday at 8 p.m. at the Bar on Dolores at 29th and Dolores. Starting after any very important sports game that might happen to be on, you're guaranteed a night of laughter for free. And when paired with the drink specials and the nicest bartender in San Francisco, it'll become a Thursday ritual. Show up to go out for comics, and please, reserve your free tickets on Eventbrite so we know you're coming to laugh. Baby! <laughs> happy, happy hour the, is when the comedy is the cheapest. Happy hour, the most free two hours of hour-long comedy on the radio and internet streaming live at 2781 21st Street. Come down. Be in the audience. Dog friendly. Dog friendly. We are. Mutiny Radio is absolutely dog friendly. Ooh, a dog party. Ain't no party like a dog party. <laughs> dog party at Mutiny Radio. Every Friday, dog party at Mutiny Radio. Happy hour. 2781 21st Street. Happy hour. Mutiny Radio. Dot FM. Here in Dot SF. Calling all crusties, punks, and poses. Pick your posteriors up off the pavement. Pack up your pins and patches and prepare to party. The Pacific Northwest Vest Fest returns this Saturday only at the SeaTac Expo Center. Whether you're a leather lover or just a denim demon, if you're looking to dress to impress for less, do not stress. You'll find all the best in pre-distressed fest right here at the Pacific Northwest Fest Fest. With over 40 vendors selling countless crossover styles, you'll find the perfect thing for your scene. Metal, thrash, Walmart, high-vis, and everything in between. All in one place. One day only. Unless it's a jacket. If you need a jacket, take your square ass somewhere else. Never pay for fabric you don't need. It ditches 
sleeves, but save the rest for the Pacific Northwest Fest Fest this Saturday only at SeaTac. Bring a can of PBR, get it half price. Daddy, Daddy, what are we going to do today? At 2 p.m. on a Saturday afternoon? Oh, over there at the parklet in front of Atlas Cafe for Titans of Comedy. That That's Titans of Comedy. Apparently, they've got great sandwiches, cafe drinks, and even some of my favorite beverages, like beer, wine, and sangria. All the things I drink to forget your mother. I knew Uncle Blake says you smell like a brewery. What did I say about interrupting me? Anywho, right here on 20th and Alabama in the Deep Mission, paired with tasty comedy from Bay Area's favorite comics. For free! Every Saturday, or at least the two Saturdays a month that the court mandates I have to see you. It's sunshine, and even in the drizzle, but not too much. Hey, Daddy, remember after soccer practice when it was raining and you didn't come? I really don't. Anywho. You take it with the freezers. Reservations on Eventbrite. Fucking public schools. In a tri-level dual world of stand-up comedy, laughter has value and the unexpected laugh is priceless. Who is that live.com? Comedy local shows on sale now. Everyone that purchases a ticket will automatically be entered into a true drawing. Who wants to focus on the genre of stand-up comedy and those that, who's that? Go to whoisthatlive.com for upcoming shows. Join us on a journey That song is called Acid and Fapping. Come to OMG on Savory 6th Street for DGIF. Thank gods, it's funny. Every third Friday at OMG, check us out. Free shows, great drink specials, hilarious 
Comics every Friday. San Francisco, gouging you. Here we go. Free comedy with Mutiny Radio. You know you love us. Third Fridays of every month. OMG, 6th Street. Come on out with your friends. Mutiny Radio, G-G-I-F at OMG. Different shows for all of your listening pleasure.
One evening as the sun went down and the jungle fires were burning, down the track came a hobo hiking. He said, boys, I'm not turning. I'm heading for a land that's far away beside that crystal fountain. I'll see you all this coming fall in the big rock candy mountains. In the big rock candy mountains, it's a land that's fair and bright. The handouts grow on bushes and you sleep out every night. The boxcars all are empty, the sun shines every day. I'm bound to go where there ain't no snow, where the sleet don't fall and the wind don't blow. In the big rock candy mountains, oh, the buzzing of the bees in the cigarette trees by the soda water fountain. By the lemonade springs where the bluebird sings In the big rock candy mountain In the big rock candy mountains You never change your socks Little streams of alcohol come trickling down the rocks Oh, the shacks all have to tip their hats The railroad bulls are blind there's a lake of stew and ginger ale too You can paddle all around it in a big canoe In the big rock candy mountains Oh, the buzzing of the bees in the cigarette trees By the soda water fountain By the lemonade springs where the bluebird sings In the big rock candy mountains In the big rock candy mountains The cops have wooden legs the bulldogs all have rubber teeth and the hens lay soft-boiled eggs. The boxcars all are empty and the sun shines every day. I'm bound to go where there ain't no snow, where the sleet don't fall and the wind don't blow. In the big rock candy mountains, oh, the buzzing of the bees in the cigarette trees by the soda water fountain. By the lemonade springs where the bluebird sings in the big rock candy mountain. In the big rock candy mountains, the jails are made of tin. You can slip right out again as soon as they put you in. There ain't no short handle shovels, no axes, saws, nor picks. I'm bound to stay where you sleep all day Where they hung the jerk that invented work In the big rock candy mountain Oh, the buzzing of the bees in the cigarette trees By the soda water fountain By the lemonade springs where the bluebird sings In the big rock candy mountain
Deep 70 in the city of San Diego, under the Coronado Bridge, lied a little piece of land. A piece of land that the community of Logan Heights wanted to make into a park. A park where all the chavalitos could come and play in, so they wouldn't have to play in the street anymore and get run over by a car. A park where all the viejitos could come and just sit down and watch the sun go down in the tarde. A park where all the familias could come and just get together on a Sunday afternoon and celebrate the spirit of life itself. But the city of San Diego said, Chale, we're gonna make a highway patrol substation here, man. So on April the 22nd, 1970, La Raza of Logan Heights and other Chicano communities of San Diego got together and they organized and they walked on the land and they took it over with their picks and their shovels and they began to build their park. And today, that little piece of land under the Coronado Bridge is known to everybody as Chicano Park. It began in 1970 under the Coronado Bridge and mi barrio in San Diego where my people Chicano Park, for oh, Chicano Park, under the bridge, under the bridge, under the
que vivan, que vivan, raza, los barrios unidos, raza, que vivan, que vivan, raza, los barrios unidos, raza, que vivan, que vivan, raza, los barrios unidos, raza, que vivan, que vivan, raza, los barrios unidos, raza, que vivan, que vivan. And good morning, everybody. Good morning, all of you who are out there, all of you who are out there and have the wisdom to sign in to Labor and Love Radio. Just kidding, folks. This is Labor and Love Radio coming at you from 27... 81, 24th Street, in the very heart of the mission. And we heard that last one, Chicano Park Samba, about a community that got together, community in San Diego that got together and took over some land and used it for the community instead of for some corporate entity or state entity. Chicano Park Samba, and we'll connect that up with a holiday. Yesterday was a holiday, Cinco de Mayo. What does the one have to do with the other? Well, quite a bit when it comes down to it. We'll get right on that. What else have we got for you today? Well, let's, let's start with our, our mantra. This is Labor and Love Radio. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, that means someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table where you live, where you work, you're on the menu. Never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. When I say labor, I mean you. And this is Labor and Love Radio where the labor Meets the road. Going to go through some credos. Let's see. The credos, things that we believe on this show. Pity the nation, Lawrence Berlinghetti. This one continues to make sense. Pity the nation whose people are sheep and whose shepherds mislead them. Pity the nation whose leaders are liars, whose sages are silent, and whose bigots haunt the airwaves. Pity the nation that raises not its voice, except to praise conquerors and acclaim the bully as hero, and aims to rule the world by force and by torture. Pity the nation that knows no other language but its own and no other culture but its own. Pity the nation whose breath is money and sleeps the sleep of the too well-fed. Pity the nation, oh, pity the people who allow their rights to erode and their freedoms to be washed away. My country, tears of thee, sweet land of liberty. 
Here's Robert Reich, and this is something we should always keep in mind. Your reminder that the richest 1% own half the stock market. And the richest 10% own almost all of it, 92%. So when people brag about the stock market, they're not talking about the economy of the 90%. The ones that we inherit. Kids don't have a little brother working in the coal mine. <clears throat> they don't have a little sister coughing her lungs out in the looms of the big mill towns of the Northeast. Why? Because we organized. We broke the back of the sweatshops in this country. We have child labor laws. Parenthetical insertion. Even though they aren't, uh, they aren't always. They aren't always. It's quite a, an industry of child labor being smuggled into the U.S., exploited. These laws were not benevolent gifts from enlightened management. They were fought for, they were bled for, they were died for by working people, by people like us. Kids ought to know that. That's why I sing these songs. That's why I tell these stories, damn it. No root, no fruit. What about immigrants? This is a manufactured, manufactured crisis. Can I tell you a secret? I don't even care if there are undocumented immigrants in this country. Without Social Security numbers, they aren't privy to the welfare people claim they get. The vast majority of them are normal people trying to live a better life. The whole wall, deport the illegals, BS, is just the 1%. Again, convincing the working people to blame a subset of the working poor for the fact that they're all poor instead of realizing the reason they're all poor is due to the vast income inequality and resource people, resource price inflation in combination with wage stagnation. Use your brains. The existence of another poor person is not why you're poor. Because the people who control everything refuse to increase your wages. Hello? You're not, that's not that into politics. Talking to somebody, they say, oh, I'm just not that into politics. Well, your boss is, your landlord is, your insurance company is. And every day they use their political power to keep your pay low, raise your rent, and deny you coverage. Time to get into politics. Unless you can afford it. See, if you can afford not to worry about politics, if you know that Nick, tomorrow that money is going to be there for you, or that place is going to be there for you, or that future is going to be there for you, sure, then you don't have to get into politics. 
for the rest of us, we got to get into politics. Okay, let's see here. Take preview. What do we got on the docket today? Today, Cinco de Mayo, right? Yesterday was Cinco de Mayo. What's Cinco de Mayo all about? We're going to run that down for you. What the writer's strike really is. What it's about. Okay. Socialism. Habituation. Why Republicans are keep being forced to love it. We played a Pete Seeger song. This week celebrates the birth of Pete Seeger on May 3rd. We've got radio labor for you coming right up. Oakland teachers strike. What's that about? Union hotel workers win a big victory. And... The usual stuff, labor history in two. Cinco de Mayo, let's start out with Cinco de Mayo. is called a real story. Mayo, or the 5th of May in English, is a day of Mexican pride and heritage. Every May 5th, parts of Mexico and many people in the United States take the time to celebrate with parades, family gatherings, parties, folk dancing, mariachi music, Mexican-inspired food, and of course, cerveza and margaritas. Over the years, many Americans have come to assume that it honors the day of Mexico's independence. And that's actually not true. Mexican Independence Day is called Grito de Dolores, or in English, Cry of Dolores, in reference to the battle cry of the Mexican War of Independence from Spain. It is celebrated on September 16th, when Mexico declared its independence back in 1810. So what really happened on the 5th of May, and what are we truly celebrating? Cinco de Mayo commemorates an event that happened some 50 years after Mexico declared its independence. The 19th century was especially brutal for Mexico. After a long and fierce battle to win its independence from Spain, the young nation clashed with the United States from 1846 to 1848, and then a civil war beginning in 1857. These struggles ruined Mexico's economy, and the country had accumulated quite a bit of war debt. By 1861, Mexico had borrowed a lot of money from the United Kingdom, Spain, and France. With no other options, Mexican President Benito Juarez suspended payments on Mexican debt for two years. That news wasn't well received by the European countries. In response, representatives from the Spanish, British, and French governments met in London, and on October 31, 1861, signed a tripartite agreement to intervene in Mexico to recover the unpaid debts. It led the three countries to put pressure on Mexico through naval blockades. Although the British and Spanish governments had more limited plans for intervention, 
Napoleon was interested in reviving French global ambitions. Not that Napoleon, this guy. Napoleon III, Napoleon Bonaparte's nephew and the Emperor of France. Napoleon III desired to incorporate Mediterranean states and former Spanish and Portuguese colonies in the Americas into a French-led federation. The United States Civil War gave Napoleon III the chance to conquer Mexico without American interference. In December 1861, Spanish troops landed in the port of Veracruz. The French and British followed in early January. The three nations occupied Veracruz. However, the tripartite alliance fell apart by early April 1862 when it became clear that the French had bigger ambitions. The British and Spanish withdrew, leaving the French to march alone on Mexico City. Certain that French victory would come swiftly in Mexico, 6,000 French troops set out from Veracruz in May 1862 to attack the city of Puebla on their way to Mexico City. The vastly outnumbered and poorly supplied Mexicans fortified the town and prepared for the French assault. On May 5, 1862, Cinco de Mayo, the French moved to attack. The French commanders were under the impression that the Mexican garrison was much smaller than it really was, and that the people of Puebla would surrender easily rather than risk much damage to their city. The French army tried a direct assault on Puebla ordering the troops to concentrate on the strongest part of the defense, Guadalupe Fortress, which stood on a hill overlooking the city. Attacking the fortress directly would prove to be a major mistake. The French infantry attacked three times, and each time they were repelled by the Mexicans. The battle lasted from daybreak to early evening, and when the French finally retreated, they had lost nearly 500 soldiers. Fewer than 100 Mexicans had been killed in the clash. Although not a major strategic win in the overall war against the French, the Mexican victory, led by Texas-born General Ignacio Zaragoza on Cinco de Mayo, represented a great symbolic victory for the Mexican people and empowered the resistance movement. Because of this great triumph, General Zaragoza is considered a hero and champion of the Battle of Puebla. Since then, the city of Puebla has been renamed Puebla de Zaragoza. So that's it. Right? Happy Cinco de Mayo! The day when a ragtag band of Mexican troops managed to defeat what was then the greatest army in the world. David had beaten Goliath, a truly impressive feat. But that's not the end of the story. Now the pride and prestige of France and of Napoleon III was at stake. Reinforcements were sent and the French army in Mexico rose to 28,000 men. During the winter, the French prepared for a new campaign in spring 1863. This larger French force laid siege to Puebla beginning on March 16th by encircling the city. The Mexican troops in Puebla held out for almost two months before being forced to surrender. By June, the French emerged victorious and took command of Mexico City. Forced to leave the capital, President Juarez kept himself and his government alive by a long series of retreats that ended at El Paso del Norte, later named Juarez, at the Mexico-U.S. border. With the French army occupying Mexico City, the Second Mexican Empire was established with the support of Napoleon III. The provisional government offered the crown to the Austrian Archduke, Maximilian of Habsburg. Napoleon convinced Maximilian that Mexico had authorized his appointment. In fact, a mockery of a referendum had been staged with not a single vote cast against him. 
Under the banner of the Second Mexican Empire, Maximilian and his wife Charlotte looked forward to their new home and were led to believe their presence would be welcomed. They set sail for Mexico and received a cold reception from the townspeople. Maximilian I was crowned emperor on April 10, 1864. To the surprise of many, he pushed for laws to prohibit child labor, established a limit to working hours, and abolished a system of land tenancy that virtually amounted to serfdom. Both he and his wife immersed themselves in Mexico's culture. Charlotte changed her name to the Spanish equivalent and was known as Empress Carlota. However, the French were still occupiers, and the Mexicans continued to fight them. By 1866, the Mexicans were winning more battles, and with the end of the Civil War, the United States was finally in a position to help its besieged neighbor. Not wanting to start a war with the United States, France finally withdrew. Maximilian was captured, and in a controversial decision, later executed by firing squad with two of his generals. In June 1867, Benito Juarez reclaimed the presidency and proclaimed the 5th of May, the anniversary of the Battle of Puebla, would be a national holiday. Today, Cinco de Mayo is actually more widely celebrated in the United States than in Mexico. In fact, the world's largest Cinco de Mayo party is held in Los Angeles, California. But the unlikely win for the Mexican militia on May 5th continues to be a source of great pride for the state of Puebla and many Mexican Americans across the United States. Once again, happy Cinco de Mayo. think about Cinco de Mayo. Here are some myths. Sure everyone loves a good party, but if you're gonna celebrate something, make sure you're doing it right. Welcome to Watch Mojo's Top 5 Myths. In today's installment, we'll be counting down the top 5 myths about Cinco de Mayo. Before we begin, we publish new videos every day, so be sure to subscribe for more great content. This historical holiday has acquired the reputation of being a serious fiesta, but in their hurry to get in on the fun, many people have skimmed over the finer details. Sinkhole de Mayo. Sinkhole de Mayo, that's why it's named that, because yeah. sinkholes happen in the summertime. So come along as we debunk some of the most common misconceptions so you can do the holiday some justice. Myth number five, it's Mexican Independence Day. Mexico does have an Independence Day, but it's celebrated each year on September 16th, whereas Cinco de Mayo, which translates to the 5th of May, takes place on, surprise surprise, May 5th. Oh, why can't they just call it May 5th? Cinco de Mayo is actually held in honor of the 1862 Battle of Puebla, where the Mexican army managed to defeat the French, who, by some estimates, outnumbered the Mexican forces either 2 to 1 or 3 to 1. Although the French ultimately proved victorious in their Mexican campaign, the Battle of Puebla became a symbol of Mexican unity and identity. Viva Mexico! In more recent decades, the holiday has evolved, at least in the United States, into more of a general celebration of Mexican-American identity. Myth number four, everyone wears sombreros. Now we've got some history under our belts, we can start to get into the many false assumptions people make about Cinco de Mayo. While one commonly hears that everyone is Irish on St. Patrick's Day, the same logic should not be applied to this Mexican holiday. Unfortunately, many people not of Mexican descent seem to have missed out on that memo and celebrate the holiday by appropriating Mexican culture in the form of sobreros or other stereotypical apparel. <laughs> People without Mexican heritage can partake in the celebrations, but if they do, it should be done more respectfully. Celebrate the culture, don't parody it. 
At the Battle of Puebla, people weren't wearing sombreros, and you shouldn't either. Myth number three, tequila is the drink of choice. Tequila! The holiday has earned a hard partying reputation, and the alcohol does tend to flow relatively freely. But isn't that the case with many holidays? The aforementioned St. Patty's Day, the 4th of July, New Year's, whenever and wherever people are celebrating, alcohol tends to be consumed in excess. Despite what many of you may have heard, however, margaritas were not invented specifically for Cinco de Mayo. In fact, tequila, despite being intertwined with Mexican culture, isn't even the right beverage to be drinking. Arguably the most traditional beverage associated with Cinco de Mayo, particularly in Puebla City, is Agua Fresca. And guess what? It's not even alcoholic. Come on, man. Delicious agua fresca made of rice, cinnamon, and milk? Myth number two, tacos are the dish of choice. Who wants a taco? <laughs> we've covered the clothing and the drinks, so naturally we've got to address the culinary elephant in the room as well. We've said it before, but we'll say it again. Cinco de Mayo is a Mexican holiday, but that doesn't mean you can simply consume the most common Mexican dishes and call it celebrating. Yes, in America on Cinco de Mayo, a lot of tacos are going to be consumed, and there's nothing inherently wrong with eating them, it's just got nothing to do with Cinco de Mayo. If you're actually looking to celebrate the occasion, try a dish that's actually traditional with Puebla City, like mole poblano, chalupas, or chilies en nogada. Myth number one, it's celebrated throughout Mexico. Cinco de Mayo is as Mexican as it gets. Admittedly, this one catches a lot of people off guard. But unlike Mexican Independence Day, which is the biggest holiday in Mexico and is celebrated across the nation, Cinco de Mayo recognizes a very regionally specific event. And while the Battle of Puebla was a historically significant event to the country, nowadays it is an official holiday only in that region. So why am I celebrating the Cinco de Mayo with complete strangers? Unsurprisingly, Puebla City continues to host the largest and most significant Cinco de Mayo festivities anywhere in the world. With the exception of Puebla City and its surrounding regions, however, the holiday is significantly bigger in the US than Mexico, as Mexican-American populations have embraced it as an opportunity to celebrate and strengthen their community. <laughs> so which of these myths did you believe? Check out these other great clips from WatchMojo and subscribe for new videos every day. Finally, what really happened at the Battle of Puebla? In 1862, French Emperor Napoleon III invaded Mexico, allegedly to collect debt owed by the Mexican government, but in reality, his goal was to instate Maximilian II as his puppet monarch of Mexico. One of the leading generals of the French forces was Charles de Lorenzi, a 48-year-old veteran general who had a track record of successful service in Algeria and against the Russians in the Crimean War, where he earned his rank at the Battle of Malakoff. His army had plowed into Mexico facing little resistance, delivering humiliating defeats for Mexico, until the French advanced to the city of Puebla, where the young Mexican general, by the name of Ignacio Zaragoza, decided that enough was enough. Despite being only 33 years of age, Ignacio Zaragoza was no stranger to battle. He had previously commanded for the Liberal Army during the Mexican Reform War, 
and played a major role in the victory at the Battle of Calpulapan just two years earlier. Both generals had achievement under their belts, but De Lorenze would bring the upper hand. His army outnumbered Zaragoza by up to three times as many men. And on top of that, he was French. The French army was considered to be among the best in the world. It had a fierce reputation left over from the Napoleonic era, with professionalism and cutting-edge technology for the time. The Mexican army, on the other hand, was considered to be a ragtag force, with the bare minimum of training and equipment, with a bad reputation from losing the Mexican-American War. However, Zaragoza was about to prove otherwise. It was a hot summer day on the 5th of May in the desert city of Puebla. De Lorenze saw that he had the mass numerical advantage and sought to drive the Mexicans from the field while risking as little troops as possible. His plan was to attack the lightly defended Fort Guadalupe with a portion of his infantry with artillery support from his grand battery of cannons. From there, the French could use the cannons in the fortress to fire down upon the rest of the Mexican army which would leave Zaragoza with no choice but to retreat if he wished to keep his army intact. The first attack began at noon, starting with a heavy cannonade from French artillery. Little did the French notice, however, most of their shells were bouncing off the hillside, thus causing only superficial damage. The French infantry had to advance through rough terrain, covered in rocks and agave. Their ranks were being torn apart by Mexican artillery fire from both forts at close range. Their attack on Fort Guadalupe was easily repulsed by determined Mexicans, who inflicted heavy casualties. De Lorenze failed to deliver the decisive blow he planned for, costing him time and men. He needed a new plan to win fast. In his second attempt, Lorenze decided to launch an assault on the Mexican right flank in order to pin them down as a diversion. While the diversion was in place, the infantry on the French left led an attack on the fortress once more. This attack was more successful. The French managed to raise their flag over the fortress amidst heavy fighting, but the Mexican colors were still flying after the French were driven out again at bayonet point. Meanwhile, on the right, the Mexican lines held with strength and courage, and pushed back the French as well. Soon the French forces were recalled in failure, but Zaragoza's men were only holding on by a threat. He issued one final all-out attack, including all of his reserved forces. This was to be the nail in the coffin for Zaragoza's army. It was discovered at this time that the French cannons had run completely out of ammunition, and so the final French wave was sent in without any artillery support. The desperate attack on Guadalupe was met with an even more desperate Mexican defense, who clung onto their lives in grim hand-to-hand -hand combat. 
Meanwhile on the right, the French and Mexican soldiers exchanged volleys until the entire attacking force began to fall back in disarray. Zaragoza then saw the weakness in the French forces. They were exhausted and shaken after enduring multiple failed attacks with heavy losses. Zaragoza was not going to waste this opportunity to take the initiative. He issued an all-out Mexican attack. A ferocious line battle developed on the Mexican right flank. On the left, the Mexicans left their defenses to throw themselves into a devastating downhill charge that began to quickly push back the French. Zaragoza then decided to seal De Lorenze's fate deadly cavalry charge ordered on both flanks. French morale was absolutely shattered. The entirety of De Lorenze's army rushed a panicked retreat off the field. Zaragoza had his victory. The Battle of Puebla was a decisive win for the Mexicans who only suffered 227 casualties, while the French lost more than three times as many men. The battle was not the turning point in the French invasion, neither was it the last battle to erupt in Puebla, but it fired up the spirits of patriotic resistance across Mexico as it proved that the young nation had a chance to oppose their invaders. Today, the battle is celebrated in the holiday Cinco de Mayo in America and Mexico. In America, cultural appropriation by unauthentic Mexican-themed attire is quite common among those who don't even know what the holiday is about. Is this a valid form of celebration? Or is it disrespectful to the men who fought and died for their country? Let me know in the comments below. Thank you to our artist Silent Rebel Art for her beautiful portraits. If you... Okay, there it is. Uh... Never again let it be said that Cinco de Mayo is Mexican independence. I've seen a couple versions of the battle. I've heard about the five myths connected with the holiday. So, go forth and use your knowledge. What does this have to do with with the labor movement anyway. What does this have to do with anything? It's a battle that took place in 1862. Well, Chicano activists have taken the Battle of Puebla to be, to stand for the whole issue of occupation of the community, of outside forces such as police coming into the community and occupying it. So Cinco de Mayo stands for that. 
Happy, feliz dia de cinco. All right, let's see what we got now. Belafonte, let's do uh, let's do some labor stuff, video labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, May 5th, 2023. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, the General Secretary of the International Domestic Workers Federation wins the 2023 Arthur Svensson Prize. Her May 1st led to the UN's Declaration on Labor Rights. The Labor Start report about union events and singing. This is Radio Labor. They really think domestic workers are nobody. They work at home, they cook, they wash clothes, they clean the floor. So what? You know, they think that these work are no value. That is Elizabeth Tang, the General Secretary of the International Domestic Workers Federation, the IDWF. She has been awarded the 20... 2023 Arthur Svensson International Prize for Trade Union Rights. The prize has become recognized as the Nobel Prize of the international labor movement. Ms. Tang, who has been living in exile in the UK, was arrested at the beginning of March 2023 when she went to Hong Kong to visit her husband in prison. She is currently out on bail and awaiting developments in her case. Her husband, Lee Chuk Young, was president of the now disbanded Hong Kong Confederation of Trade Unions. He was imprisoned in 2021. The International Domestic Workers Federation was at the forefront of the campaign to get the International Labor Organization, the ILO, to adopt an international law, Convention 189, which calls for minimum employment standards for the 67 million domestic workers in the world. 36 countries have ratified Convention 189, which means they have made it part of their legal infrastructure. Here is Ms. Tang in an interview conducted before her arrest. I'm the General Secretary of the International Domestic Workers Federation, uh, which is uh, the global federation of uh, all the domestic workers in the world. We organize domestic workers everywhere, uh, even in countries uh, which are very difficult for domestic workers. Uh, but when they organize, then they have a voice and they also have uh, the power to make change. Uh, we uh, also train uh, domestic workers to become leaders. Uh, and we now see uh, many uh, young generation of domestic workers who are very young, but they are now uh, also speaking up and uh, taking uh, domestic workers uh, to meet uh, government, to meet employers, uh, to negotiate for their rights. Uh, we also represent workers at, at uh, international meetings. Uh, for example, the domestic workers leaders uh, went with me uh, to go to the United Nations and uh, to talk uh, to government uh, ministers about the need uh, to make uh, laws uh, to give social protections to domestic workers. Domestic workers uh, must be treated as workers. Uh, this is still not the case in many parts of the world. 
domestic workers that do not have minimum wage protections. Uh, they work uh, every day in a week. There is no rest days. And this is absolutely unacceptable, and this uh, has to be changed. And uh, domestic workers uh, must also have their voice, have their organizations. Uh, as you know, many domestic workers are migrants, so they are invisibles. Uh, nobody really care about their situations. And now there are more refugees uh, coming to uh, the better part of the world, like in Europe. And uh, some of the women also work as domestic workers because that is the only job uh, possible for them. Uh, but we have to make sure that uh, they will be protected. Still, in many people's mind, this work is uh, of no value. Uh, and domestic workers really, uh, you know, people uh, have uh, no skills. And, uh, and why... Why we should pay them? You know, why uh, we should allow them to have a rest day? This world is really easy. You know, this is still the, yeah, the mentality, the perception of many people. The convention uh, number 189 was uh, international law adopted in uh, 2011, uh, which sets uh, the minimum standard for all domestic workers, no matter who they are, no matter where they are. Uh, governments uh, must make sure that they have this minimum uh, protection, this minimum rights. And, uh, and uh, it is very important that government uh, recognize uh, there is an international standard. But then, of course, uh, in the, in the lawmaking uh, bodies, uh, many uh, politicians are also employers of domestic workers, so they, you know, they are also uh, have this uh, selfish uh, concern. Uh, but uh, really, uh, we have to push the government, but we also have to tell people uh, everywhere uh, in the community that the people who work for you at home, who cook, who wash, who clean, uh, should be also treated as workers. The original intent of May 1st, International Workers' Day, was to build solidarity amongst working people all around the world and work towards global peace. Many years later, after two devastating world wars, nations came together to declare what was needed to protect human rights and put an end to war. The result was the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights. Because of all of the work by unionists after the original May 1st celebration, the UN Declaration included the right to join trade unions as a human right. Here is the American diplomat Eleanor Roosevelt reading part of the UN's Declaration on Human Rights. Whereas recognition of the inherent dignity and of the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice, and peace in the world. Whereas disregard and contempt for human rights have resulted in barbarous acts which have outraged the conscience of mankind, and the advent of a world in which human beings shall enjoy freedom of speech and belief and freedom from fear and want has been proclaimed as the highest aspiration of the common people, whereas it is essential if man is not to be compelled to have recourse as a last resort to rebellion against tyranny and oppression, that human rights should be protected by the rule of law. Article 21. Everyone has the right to freedom of peaceful assembly and association. 
22. No one may be compelled to belong to an association. Article 22. Everyone, as a member of society, has the right to social security and is entitled to realization through national effort and international cooperation and in accordance with the organization and resources of each state of the economic, social, and cultural rights indispensable for his dignity and the free development of his personality. Article 23.1. Everyone has the right to work, to free choice of employment, to just and favorable conditions of work, and to protection against unemployment. 2. Everyone, without any discrimination, has the right to equal pay for equal work. 3. Everyone who works has the right to just and favorable remuneration, ensuring for himself and his family an existence worthy of human dignity, and supplemented, if necessary, by other means of social protection. 4. Everyone has the right to form and to join trade unions for the protection of his interests. Article 24. Everyone has the right to rest and leisure, including reasonable limitations of working hours and periodic holidays with pay. Article 25.1. Everyone has the right to a standard of living adequate for the health and well-being of himself and of his family, including food, clothing, housing and medical care and necessary social services, and the right to security in the event of unemployment, sickness, disability, slowly. widowhood, this old age, fastest. or other lack of livelihood in circumstances beyond his control. Here with his report about union events is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. This week our top story section included links to coverage of us, or rather our latest global solidarity conference. Last week, for the first time since the beginning of the pandemic, Almost 300 trade unionists from 70 countries gathered in Tbilisi, Georgia, for a Labor Start Global Solidarity Conference. The conference consisted of three days of workshops and panel discussions on a wide range of issues that are key to building working-class solidarity at a time of increased ethno-nationalism, authoritarianism, and global conflict. Following the conference, many participants stayed in Tbilisi and joined the Georgian Trade Union Confederation in its May Day celebrations. Speaking of May Day, other top stories this week included May Day coverage from unions around the world, a call for global solidarity with comrades in Algeria by the International Union of Food Workers, and calls for Iran to be expelled from the International Labor Organization as a consequence of its failure to recognize the freedom of association as a fundamental human right. A random sample from our news pages includes a renewed push against child labor by the teachers union in Cote d'Ivoire, an interview with an activist garment worker and photographer in Bangladesh, a ban on unloading ships in Belize, a victory by New Zealand building cleaners, and how Amazon workers in India won redundancy payments. This week, our Working Women news page carried complaints that healthcare employers in the United Kingdom are failing to provide adequate training on sexual harassment at work, the dehumanizing effects of poverty on unemployed Australian women, and a commitment and concrete plans for building more inclusive unions across South Asia. Stories appearing on our Health and Safety page in Newsroom this week included lots and lots and lots of stories about how unions around the world marked the 28th of April, Workers' Memorial Day. 
But we also managed to find time to collect news of how their union is reacting to the murders of two South African nurses, how media workers in Cameroon are responding in the face of severe state and extrajudicial repression, and calls for cancer compensation by firefighters in dozens of countries around the world. Our current photo of the week is a shot of two workers at a banana plantation in Panama. These women are leading a struggle to improve grossly inadequate and unsafe employer-provided housing. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now here is Union Nation with an old labor song produced by America's industrial workers of the world. She's a rebel girl. Tennis ball sized tumor that uh, rushed over to our local children's hospital. Everybody always says the worst vengeance in the world is you have.
streets are gay and the sun shines daily on the mountain top. I took a trip on a sailing ship and when I reached Jamaica I made a stop but I'm sad to say I'm on my way won't be back for many a day my heart is down my head is turning around I had to leave a little girl in Kingston town of laughter everywhere and the dancing girls swaying to and fro I must declare my heart is there though I've been from Maine to Mexico but I'm sad to say I'm on my way won't be back for many a day my heart is down my head is turning around I had to leave a little girl in Kingston town Market, you can hear ladies cry out while on their heads they bear. Aki rice, salt fish are nice, and the rum is fine any time of year. But I'm sad to say I'm on my way. Won't be back for many a day. My heart is down, my head is turning around. I had to leave a little girl in Kingston town. truly Peter Seeger in the spring of 1941 that was the year that Henry Ford was being organized into the CIO and Woody Guthrie had taught the three of us the old talking blues you know if you want to get to heaven let me tell you what to do got to grease your feet in a little mutton stew and I think Mill it was thought of paraphrasing that and Lee added a verse and I added a verse and Suddenly, we had the song almost completed, except that we hadn't found any solution. We'd All we'd done is add up the problems that we hadn't found how to solve any of them. And about a month went by, and one day I was sitting up on the roof and realized that uh, there was only one solution to it, the old one of stick together. So I made two verses to end it off, none of them rhymed, and that's how the song Talking Union was born.
Now you want higher wages, let me tell you what to do. Got to talk to the workers in the shop with you. You got to build you a union, got to make it strong. But if you all stick together, boys, it won't be long. It gets shorter hours. Better working conditions. Vacations with pay, take your kids to the seashore. Cause it ain't quite that simple, so I better explain just why you got to ride on the union train. Cause if you wait for the boss to raise your pay, we'll all be waiting till judgment day. We'll all be buried. Gone to heaven. St. Peter will be the straw boss then, boys. Now you know you're underpaid, but the boss says you ain't. He speeds up the work till you're about to faint. You may be down and out, but you ain't beaten. Pass out a leaflet, call a meeting, talk it over. Speak your mind. Decide to do something about it. Cause the boss may persuade some poor damn fool to go to your meeting and act like a stool. But you can always tell a stool, though, that's a fact. He's got a yellow streak running down his back. He doesn't have to stool, you know. He'll always make a good living on what he takes out of blind men's cups. Well, you got a union now. You're sitting pretty. Put some of the boys on the steering committee. The boss won't listen if one guy squawks, but he's got to listen if the union talks. He'd better. He'll be mighty lonely one of these days. Suppose he's working you so hard, it's just outrageous, paying you all starvation wages. You go to the boss, the boss would yell, before I raise your pay, I'd see you all in hell. Well, he's puffing a big cigar, feeling mighty slick, thinks he's got your union licked. He looks out the window, and what does he see but a thousand pickets, and they all agree, he's a bastard. Unfair. Slave driver. Betty beats his own wife. Now, boys, you come to the hardest time. The boss will try to bust your picket line. He'll call out the police, the National Guard, tell you it's a crime to have a union card. They'll raid your meeting, hit you on the head, call every one of you a goddamn red young patriotic. Moscow agents, bomb throwers, even the kids. Well, out in Detroit, here's what they found. Down in Pittsburgh, here's what they found. Down in Bethlehem, here's what they found. Out in Frisco, here's what they found. That if you don't let red baiting break you up, if you don't let stool pigeons break you up, if you don't let race hatred break you up, if you don't let vigilantes break you up, you'll win. What I mean, take it easy, but take it.
this day in labor history, the year was 1830. That was the birthday of Richard Trevelack, one of the early leaders of the U.S. labor movement and the fight for the eight-hour workday. Of English descent, Richard was the son of a Cornish farmer. As a young man, Trevelack took up the trade of a ship carpenter. Soon after, he traveled to Australia to seek his fortune and to prospect for gold. The horrible working conditions caused him to speak out for workers in Australia and New Zealand before arriving in the United States. First, he came to New Orleans, where he became involved in the trade union movement. When the Civil War broke out, he traveled north. In 1862, he settled in Detroit, working in the Detroit Dry Docks. Soon after, Richard became president of the Ship Carpenters and Caulkers International Union. He was well known as an eloquent speaker for the cause of labor. He founded the Detroit Trades Assembly, a short-lived organization. The assembly attempted to bring together skilled tradesmen to organize for improved working conditions and hours. His skills as an orator often put Trevelec in high demand in the nearby city. Of Chicago. On the 4th of July celebration held by the Chicago Trades Assembly in 1965, Trevelec called for the eight hour workday. In his speeches, Trevelec advocated that workers should not see a reduction of pay for working eight hours. Instead, he argued that increased productivity of workers should allow their wages to stay steady. He was also a proponent of worker education. He argued that a well-read workforce could better articulate its demands. In 1869, he was elected president of the National Labor Union, an early attempt to join workers across the country under the banner of one organization. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1886. That was the day that workers throughout the United States walked off their jobs in a coordinated, planned effort and demanded the eight-hour day. What made this strike truly revolutionary was that the workers were not asking for reduced pay for reduced hours. They wanted their pay level to stay the same. Chicago labor activist Alan Parsons explained this that March for the Chicago Daily News, saying, quote, the movement to reduce the work hours is intended by its projectors to give a peaceful solution to the difficulties between capitalists and laborers. I have always held that there were two ways to settle this trouble, either by peaceable means or violent methods. Reduced hours or eight hours is the peace offering. Fewer hours mean more pay. Reduced hours is only the measure of economic reform which consults the interests of the laborers as producers which can only be acquired by possessing and consuming a larger share of their own project. This would diminish the profits of the exploiters. That first day of May, tens of thousands took to the streets in Chicago, and an estimated 300,000 protested across the nation, marching for the eight-hour day. The strike met with early success. But then, three days later, an unknown person threw a bomb at a workers' rally in Chicago's Haymarket Square. The government crackdown against the eight-hour movement was quick and harsh. Eight men stood trial in Chicago for the bombing. Four were martyred despite a lack of evidence tying them to the bomb. But the idea of the eight-hour day was not so easily crushed. It spread not only in the United States, but across the world. Now, more than a century later, May Day, this day is the international workers' holiday. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com.
I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1919. That was the birthday of folk musician Pete Seeger. Seeger and his music would become staples of the U.S. labor movement. He was born into a musical family. His father was a scholar of musicology, and his mother was a concert violinist. During the 1940s, Pete Seeger joined with folk music legend Woody Guthrie to form the Almanac Singers. The band traveled the country supporting the Congress of Industrial Organizations. At picket lines, union meetings, and workers' rallies, Pete Seeger was there providing the music for the movement. In the 1950s, Seeger became the target of the anti-communist hysteria that swept the nation. He was blacklisted, shows were canceled, he lost a recording contract. Yet despite this repression, Seeger kept singing the songs of working people and standing up for justice. During the 1960s, the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, and the environmental movement all marched to Pete Seeger tunes. When Seeger died at the age of 94, labor leader Jen Fuentes reflected on the impact of his music in an article in USA Today. She said, these songs are what allowed workers to sustain themselves during times of adversity. He's a legend in the labor movement for his folk music that has spoken to the labor struggles throughout the year. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? They say in Harlan County, there are no neutrals there. You'll either be a union man. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Richmond. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1931. That was the day that became known as the Battle of Harlan or the Battle for Everts. Harlan County, Kentucky was coal country. Miners worked long hours underground and faced dangerous and often deadly working conditions. If they attempted to form a union, they risked not only losing their jobs, but also getting evicted from their company housing. Despite this response, starting in the 1920s, the United Mine Workers of America began to make headway in organizing miners. In Harlan, the miners who dared organize were fired. They and their families were thrown out of their homes. The company brought in hired guns to enforce the evictions and to keep the union out of the mines. Union miners and these gun thugs met on the road outside of the town of Everts. A gun battle broke out. Three company men and one miner were killed. The governor of Kentucky once admitted, quote, there exists a virtual reign of terror in Harlan County, financed in general by a group of coal mine operators in collusion with certain public officials. The victims of this reign of terror are the coal miners and their families. The Harlan County Mine Wars raged on for the next decade. In all, 13 miners would give their lives trying to bring a union to the Kentucky coal fields. It was one of the bloodiest struggles of the U.S. labor movement. Bloody Harlan earned its nickname. They say in Harlan County that are no neutrals there. Okay, there's our labor history portion. I want to talk about, before on our way out of here, I want to talk about a few things that are happening right now. 
Labrum is Oakland teachers strike to raise some of the state's lowest salaries. John Edsor. Markedly higher pay tops an ambitious list of contract demands by Oakland teachers who hit the picket lines early, impacting more than 34,000 students. Although the negotiations between the district and the union are getting closer on salary, they remain far apart, sources say. Monday, the district proposed a new salary schedule that would give TK to 12 teachers varying pay increases depending on their experience and education level, as well as an ongoing 10% raise retroactive to November of last year and a one-time $5,000 bonus. According to the district, first-year teachers will see their pay increase from 52000 this school year to 63000 next school year, with most teachers receiving at least a 13% salary increase. Mid-source analysis shows that Oakland has among the lowest paid mid-career teachers statewide. For the state's 22 largest school districts that filed teacher pay data, Oakland ranks 20th in teacher pay and 22 in pay adjusted for local constitution. Three did not file. The highest pay for mid-career teachers in Garden Grove Hundred and three thousand. San Francisco East Bay region of the fifty-five districts with more than one hundred thousand one thousand students filed pay data. Oakland ranks fifty-fourth according to the Ed Source analysis. Highest paid district for mid-career teachers is Hillsborough Elementary in San Mateo County with 117. So, that's why they're out on Pay raises aren't all they want, though. David McKay, teacher and union bargaining they also want fact facility improvements, shared decision making at district community schools, increased investment in historically black schools, and more support for teachers and students. Oakland Unified have been negotiating a three-year contract since October. Teachers Union initially asked for a 22.9% pay raise for the teachers. But has since revised its proposal. The raise would have bought district pay teachers to the medium comp median compensation of all teachers in Alameda County, taking into account health and welfare benefits, McKay said.
Okay, well, Hayward is very good, 104,000. New Haven, Dublin, Fremont, Pleasanton, Foster City. Pay for experienced teachers. San Francisco is right in the middle of the pack at 88,732. So let's keep our eye on that one, right? There's a big victory in New York. Union hotel workers in New York suburbs score biggest pay raise in 100 years. The deal boosts some wages to $31 an hour. It reflects pressure hotels face to raise pay amid inflation and labor shortages. Hike is closing the gap between the 7,000 covered suburban workers and their union counterparts in New York City. That was the issue. The New York Hotel Union has reached a deal with hotel owners and operators that will boost the wages of hospitality workers by $7.50 an hour. The largest increase in the union's 100-year history. The agreement covers 7,000 members of the Hotel and Gaming Table Trades Council who work at 87 suburban hotels spanning from Princeton, New Jersey to New York's Albany region and Long Island. Five-year pact has already been ratified by the employers and is expected to be ratified by workers this month, according to President, Union President Rich Morocco. So the, the issue here was the proximity to New York City, the hotels and motels in New York City were being paid more, quite a bit more than the workers in the New York suburbs. Wage increase reflects the intense pressure hotel operators are under to pay workers more amid inflation and lingering labor shortages. Despite a recent hiring spree by the hospitality industry, hotel owners across the U.S. have struggled to find and retain workers during the pandemic. Owners are raising pay and benefits and offering incentives such as retention bonuses, career development programs, and more flexible schedules. Nationwide, about 10% of the hotel workforce is unionized. Unions are most often found at brand-managed, full-service hotels in large cities such as New York, Chicago, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and Honolulu. Many owners and operators boost pay in the hopes of heading off unionization, which typically results in much costlier benefit packages and less flexible workloads. So there it is, the union Union places uh, offer better deal for their workers, more money and flexibility. 
Okay, well, that brings us to almost the end of our day. How about this one? This one is one for the future. This is something to watch because we have something, you know, among us now called AI, artificial intelligence. And a writer named Julio Vincent Gambuto is saying, what writers strike really is the first of a major American AI strikes. What we're facing here is kind of automation of art, automation of writers, writers. Can an AI robot write better? As of today, Hollywood workers are on strike. The Writers Guild of America, the nation's largest creative writers union, walked off the job as of midnight. And uh, talking about May 2nd, two days ago. Laptop shut, pencils down, which effectively means Hollywood is shuttered again. How long it will last is up in the air. Fifteen years ago, a writer's strike lasted three months. The Guild's large longest was 22 weeks in 1988. As if the two-year-plus pandemic freeze was not painful enough for an industry that employs millions of people in Los Angeles and across the nation, in creative hubs from New York to Atlanta to remote laptops everywhere. When writers strike, there are no scripts, which means producers are limited to whatever projects currently story. Six major consolidated media corporations are doing their damnedest to rob the most talented artists of their livelihood. You might care, you might not. But here's why this is major and why it is different from every other strike before. AI, artificial intelligence. Budgets are up, profits are down. I'm sorry, budgets are up, profits are up. Pay is down, it's the same story across every industry, across the whole country. This is about Wall Street greed, corporate consolidation, ridiculous CEO pay, and the devaluating of the people who actually do the work. Part of what writers are demanding is regulations for AI. Yes, they're still fighting over their revenues in new media, and they're arguing over certain basic minimums that will ensure writers don't become the Uber drivers of the industry. But the call for AI regulations may well be the most significant and important demand on the list. If ChatGPT can already pass graduate-level exams, and experts are saying big tech already has far more advanced tools than has already been rolled out. The future is dim for anyone who makes a living creating anything in the media and entertainment. 
AI can watch 5,000 or 50,000 television shows in an instant, it can damn well write me. render large swaths of the American workforce completely unnecessary will disrupt every industry in some way will have effects on our society that we cannot even fathom major corporations are designed to take advantage of these types of technologies they have zero loyalty to their human workers of any kind so this strike is the first of many, many strikes this country is about to see to defend human work, human talents, and human livelihood. Yes, we've just come out of a very odd moment in the history of the world. We are about to enter an even stranger one, one in which very core collective ideas of human creative production, work, labor, value, and contribution <coughs> will be challenged. Julio Vincent Gambuto adds, this was written by a human. <coughs> so there it is. This is an issue we've, we've, had our, we've had our eyes fixed on automation, robotics, within factories and places with places with um, assembly assembly lines anyway talking now about assembly lines for creative work. Jose Vincent Gambuto is the author. So we're going to keep our eye on this. It's about time for us to go. about time for us to go. We won't talk about that. This is <coughs> the B and the show is Labor and Love. I hope you uh, hang around for Flat Black Plastic. My buddy Scott Walker. I think he's, he's out there. <laughs> right now, though, let's read our commercial. We have Josie. Uh, Come on down to San Jalisco, where they've got the best in Mexican food. The Barra family has been serving up the very best in Mexican food. We're on to 50 years now. What's your choice? Enchiladas, tacos, you name it, they got it. They've got American food too. So come on down to San Jalisco, corner of 
20th and South Van Ness, where the food tells you you're in Mexico. <laughs> okay? So, this is the B signing off and letting you know that if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, negotiating table that is, where you work, you're on the menu. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. When I say labor, I mean you. Wishing you a good week and good work. Hope everything's going well for you. Get out there and do some good work. Feed the hungry. Shelter the orphan. Swimming through a sea of podcasts. Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutiny Radio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-face McRat. <laughs> Oh,
Patrick go. Namaste. Every Monday at 6 p.m., it's Joke Workshop, streaming live on mutinyradio.fm. Lift the veil from your third eye on joke creation and what it takes to be a stand-up comic in the five shakasanas of San Francisco's comedy scene. This all-ages open mic invites Oh, pre-sign by Venmoing 2 to $5 at Mutiny Radio. Join us live for a small and special audience at the Mutiny Radio studio and gallery performance space, 2781 21st Street at Florida Street in the deep, deep, deep mission. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Does my ponytail look cool? Thank you. Namaste. Tuesday used to be the most unlikely night for fun. But every week at 6 p.m., come to OMG's Tuesday Open Mic and see comics work out new material for free. For free, they get your Tuesday night party on with two-for-one well drink specials during the 6 to 8 p.m. show. Check out Eventbrite to reserve your free seat every Tuesday, 6 p.m. At OMG on Savory 6th Street. Savory 6th Street. Show up to go up. Hey, kids. It's your pal, Spiderman. <laughs> Sorry, Spiderman. Mortimer Spiderman. When I'm not swinging through the senior facility, best in Mysterio at Boggle, or getting beautifully plowed by the rhino, I'm headed down to Mutiny Radio at the corner of 21st and Florida. They got some schlemiels doing the laugh laugh. But hey, don't be a schmuck and donate 2 to $5 on... Hold, hold on, what is this? Let me get my glasses. The print's too small. Hold on. Venmo? That's not real. What is that, Swedish? You knew that, right? This is in San Francisco. I'll drown it on. It's nap time. The year is 2023. Oh, I wish that laughter had value and the unexpected laugh was priceless. Worry not. True entertainment has brought us a savior in whosthatlive.com. Oh, finally, an escape from the apocalyptic nightmare I live in. You can go to whosthatlive.com and buy comedy tickets. And you're in the raffle, I guess. True, 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 true production. First Sundays of every month, join your friends from Mutiny Radio at Hotel Utah on 4th and Bryant. 5 p.m. first Sundays for free comedy. Is San Francisco getting you down? Is everything too expensive? Not first Sundays of the month at Hotel Utah for free comedy with Mutiny Radio. Incredible lineups every month with the best comedians from around the Bay. Join your friends trying to keep things affordable for free comedy first Sundays of the month. Hotel Utah, 4th Street. Weekly comedy at the best neighborhood bar in the city. Join your friends from Mutiny Radio every Thursday at 8 p.m. at the Bar on Dolores at 29th and Dolores. Starting after any very important sports game that might happen to be on, 
You're guaranteed a night of laughter for free. And when paired with the drink specials and the nicest bartender in San Francisco, it'll become a Thursday ritual. Show up to go out for comics, and please reserve your free tickets on Eventbrite so we know you're coming to laugh. There is <laughs> happy, happy hour the, is when the comedy is the cheapest. Happy hour, the most free two hours of hour-long comedy on the radio and internet streaming live at 2781 21st Street. Come down. Be in the audience. Dog-friendly. Dog fri- we are. Mutiny Radio is absolutely dog-friendly. A dog party. Ain't no party like a dog party. <laughs> dog party at Mutiny Radio. Every Friday, dog party at Mutiny Radio. Happy hour. <laughs> 2781 21st Street. Happy hour. Mutiny Radio. Dot FM. Here in Dot SF. Calling all crusties, punks, and poses. Pick your posteriors up off the pavement. Pack up your pins and patches and prepare to party. The Pacific Northwest Vest Fest returns this Saturday only at the SeaTac Expo Center. Whether you're a leather lover or just a denim demon, if you're looking to dress to impress for less, do not stress. You'll find all the best in pre-distressed fest right here at the Pacific Northwest Fest Fest. With over 40 vendors selling countless crossover styles, you'll find the perfect thing for your scene. Metal, thrash, Walmart, high-vis, and everything in between. All in one place. One day only. Unless it's a jacket. If you need a jacket, take your square ass somewhere else. Never pay for fabric you don't need and ditch the sleeves, but save the rest for the Pacific Northwest Fest Fest this Saturday only at SeaTac. Bring a can of PBR, get it half price. Daddy, Daddy, what are we gonna do today? At 2 p.m. on a Saturday afternoon? Oh, over there at the parklet in front of Atlas Cafe for Titans of Comedy. That that's Titans of Comedy. Apparently, they've got great sandwiches, cafe drinks, and even some of my favorite beverages, like beer, wine, and sangria. All the things I drink to forget your mother. My new Uncle Blake says you smell like a brewery. What did I say about interrupting me? Anywho, right here on 20th and Alabama in the Deep Mission, paired with tasty comedy from Bay Area's favorite comics. For free! Every Saturday. Or at least the two Saturdays a month that the court mandates I have to see you. It's sunshine! But not too much. Hey, Daddy, remember after soccer practice when it was raining and you didn't come? I really don't. Anywho. You take it with the freezers. Reservations on Eventbrite. Stuck in public schools. In a tri-level dual world of stand-up comedy, laughter has value and the unexpected laugh is priceless who is that live.com comedy local shows on sale now everyone that purchases a ticket will automatically be entered into a true drawing who wants to focus on the genre of stand-up comedy and those that who's that go to who is that live.com for upcoming shows join us on a journey into the absurd 